Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Simon Sharma, the award-winning historian and broadcaster, joins us to discuss his latest book, Foreign Bodies, Pandemics, Vaccines and the Health of Nations. Sharma is professor of art history at Columbia University and has written numerous books and bestsellers that have also been made into documentaries by the BBC, and the most recent of which is History of Now, which explores how creativity and culture shape the world. For our conversation today, Sharma is joined by our host, Kavita Puri. She's an award-winning journalist and author of the book Partition Voices, Untold British Stories. This episode was recorded in partnership with the British Library earlier in 2023 in front of a live audience. If you want to hear the second part of the conversation ad-free and enjoy more member benefits, then do head over to intelligencesquare.com slash membership or subscribe to the channel via Apple Podcasts. Now let's join Kavita Puri and Simon Sharma in conversation. Hello all and welcome and welcome to those who are joining us online. Simon Sharma needs very little introduction. He's the author of many books, including Citizens, Landscape and Memory and the Power of Art. Um, I just found out actually Foreign Bodies isn't even out yet. It's out next Thursday. And this is Simon's first public event talking about the book. So we're very... So I'm very scared. Um, and, and the funny thing is, actually, round the corner, March 2020, just before lockdown, Simon was the last person I had a drink with. And we were <laughs> with a friend of yours who's a doctor. Yeah. And as we went to leave, he said, don't hug. <laughs> and we were just like, I, you know. Do, do you guess, did I obey that? <laughs> and no. We, we thought, well, maybe a little, a little overreaction. And at Little did I know, actually, that would be the last drink I would have with a friend in a really, really long time, because really soon after we went into lockdown. But when we were at that drink, you were definitely not talking about writing about pandemics or vaccines or the health of nations. No, I wasn't. So so tell us, what happened in between? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. well, I, you know, it, it happened in a very, there's no way to explain to, to all of you, really, except um, in a rather serpentine manner. What a shocker, right? And um, I, I was then actually working on a book about nationalism, um, and particularly about, you know, as I, about the, what I call loosely the culture of nationalism. Um, in other words, the way music, for example, in the 19th century, Um, became obsessed with expressing national identity. I was thinking of Glinka in Russia and Sibelius much later on and Elgar and so on. So, and there was was a chapter on plan, chapter on sport and even chapter on food and so on. And this, you know, it's remained, whether we like it or not, and on the whole I don't like it, um, a, a very important subject. It was called Return of the Tribes because I remember my history teacher at school, I can't remember if I've told you this story, Kavita, but um, so we're in 1958, I would guess, a brilliant teacher called Ian Lister at Haberdasher School um, in what was, used to grandly call itself Hampstead. In fact, it was the slummiest part of Crickle, which made us all <laughs> love it fabulously. And he said, well, boys, he said, um, I don't know what the rest of the, frankly, you know, we're not in the prophesying business. And this is a possible version of Ian's voice, I think. He'll forgive me if he's not here. Um, He said, but I don't know what the rest of the 20th century has, but one thing we know for sure, 
organized religion and nationalism are dead as dodos. You know, <laughs> so much indeed for the prophetic power of historians. Um, so the return of all this, you know, is a, a real phenomenon. And, um, and as I was sort of working and researching, there was also a chapter, I spent a bit of time in Kosovo on the kind of perversion of history by the likes of Slobodan Milosevic. And um, I was thinking, well, this is all incredibly, A, I kind of know this subject already, and B, it's sort of depressing. And there has to be some sort of redeeming. And I thought, well, you know, because actually when I got back, you know, it, indeed the pandemic hit. And I thought, well, the founding of the World Health Organization and indeed the way societies and nations ought to be behaving now, even in their own self-interest, because viruses and bacteria and no respecters of frontiers in a world connected by transport, by, by airlines and, and everything else. Um, this is bound to be a moment um, when national self-interest comes second to global self-interest as the motto of the COVAX scheme meant to distribute shared vaccines, buy up stocks of vaccines which could be given to the relatively poor part of the world was no one is safe until everyone is safe. So I thought, oh, well, you know, it, it's, this is one moment where, you know, how naive could I possibly be? This did not turn out to be the case. Countries that could afford to put down large sums of cash, including our own, bought up advanced stocks, while Sarah Gilbert and her lab in Oxford at AstraZeneca were just barely beginning to develop and had a very general idea of when a vaccine would, would, um, would be successfully achieved, much less distributed. And the low point for me, when I realized how naive that was, um, was when Boris Johnson's government, possibly him or I can't remember Matt Hancock, remember him, um, <laughs> was, was um, I think it was Matt Hancock there, withdrew from the European early warning. Uh, it, there's a pool of information about pandemic early warning, which the EU set up and which uh, they made clear um, would not be affected by a Brexit vote or by you know, Britain's position via, via the EU, namely exiting from it. And in order to sort of not possibly be vulnerable to criticisms that you're still part of the European Union, at the start of the pandemic, we decided to withdraw from any future warning pool of scientific and epidemiological information. I thought, this is truly awful. So I, I started to think, my wife is a biologist, retired now, but she's a, a, a geneticist wor working on cell differentiation in early implanted embryos. And, um, and so, you know, science is talked a lot in our, in our house. And I, I said, I'm sort of getting really interested in not only our present perplexity, but in, you know, the way history might have something to say about earlier pandemics and epidemics. And, you know, and so I said, you know very well, your husband has a horrific, horrible case of imposter syndrome. You know, how much more of an imposter can he possibly be? And <laughs> she said, well, I'll read the manuscript, you know, if there, if there is one, which she did, bless her. Thank you, Ginny. And um, so, so I, I, got more, I got more and more interested. And there was a, there was a turning point. Um, when I went to, I thought, well, the founding, looking desperately for a kind of redemptive moment when my slightly more, you know, expansive and optimistic, as you know, Kavita, I'm a kind of glass half full person, 
um, you know, looking for something. I thought, okay, go to the founding of the World Health Organization in 1948 in San Francisco when the UN was being set up. It was the first specialized agency. And that um, it turned out to online, everything had to be online, obviously. Um, and so much of my research was made available at archives online. Um, revealed an extraordinary thing to me. Um, something called the International Sanitary Conferences, which play a big part in the book, were founded first in 1851 to deal with cholera. Um, when, in the aftermath of, in the, there were two horrific outbreaks in this country as well as in France, well, actually, more than two. The first one was 1817, then was a very big one in 1832, and then another very big one, 1848-49, which was traced to the notorious Broad Street pump in, in Soho by incredible forensic work of, of John Snow. And um, in 1851, it was, it was sort of already known by some of the more forthright and, and you know, clear-sighted scientists. This is before anybody had ever seen a virus or a, ba a bacillus or a bacterial pathogen under a microscope. Well, and when I say before, actually, the, the first person who did see um, uh, a pathogen under a microscope was also in 1851, a man called Filippo Pacini, and it, he never got any credit for it. It was thought to be so far-fetched. But in 1851, this organization, it's the first international organization which was not a military alliance and, and not a peace conference. And it was for global public health. It was trying to, you know, to sort of surmount national and imperial barriers in, um, well, Sharma talks so long, the lights close. <laughs> it's funny, sort of like, like a pub, you know. Oh, will you now please shut up, you know, so. <laughs> I'm famous for leaving my audience in the dark, you know, actually. <laughs> oh, it's all right, you. they forgive you. Mehr, mehr Licht, which is the last thing Goethe said before he died, as you, as you all know. So um, what, I was reading the accounts of these conferences, and he showed up. And this is Marcel Proust's father, Adrian Proust. And I knew a little bit about, I knew he was a doctor, which he was. I didn't know he was an epidemiologist, turned epidemiologist, published on many, many things, on diseases of the brain, diseases of the, he was incredible, medical polymath on diseases of the lung. But he became a great mover and shaker trying to, his, his was really one of the very earliest vision. It wasn't the first, but he was the second person to say really the future of the world is always going to be in peril unless there is an international public health agency. It took him until 1903, the year he died actually, to get a more general agreement on this. And he was, you know, not particularly saintly. I mean, he, he understood that even though cholera arose from fecally contaminated water, it is quite extraordinary given the state of our rivers and mm. so on, that actually, I mean, I'm amazed that we actually don't have cholera in Britain now, and I will not be surprised when we do. Um, despite the fact that Damien Green told us he was fantastically happy as a child, <laughs> swimming amidst turds, you know, really. For, takes one to know one, I suppose. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oops, we're streaming, as it were. Kavita's um, yeah, so given me that look, which says, you shouldn't, you shouldn't said that, and I shouldn't be here if you do it, do it again. So let, 
Anyway, here is Sajjo Empress. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. But there were other signs. You're milling around in your home in New York. It's kind of yeah. locked down. And you come across a book that you picked up in, I do. in Paris. I do, and here it is. Oh, uh, here it is. Yes, this is extraordinary because, as I said, I knew, I'd always thought of Andrew Empress as a sort of figure of fun, you know, as pompous as Marcel, whatever his imperfections were, was not. And there's an extraordinary story about his father being um, believed, I mean, his father was a, a great medic in a way, but he, like countless others, believed that masturbation would kill you in various ways, or really. Um, and so he sent Marcel to a brothel um, with, with money, and, and this wasn't gonna work out, you know, Marcel being phenomenally gay at an early age. And however, Marcel tried to go through with it, and he was, what was he, 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 he sort of kicked over a, a water jug or something and broke it. Was he very young? He was 12, yeah, no, 14, 14, I think 14. Anyway, it was, it was not a good thing. So I, I thought this was terrible old pompous, dreadful martinet, which he, it was none of those things. And I did remember that actually years, years ago, 15, 20 years ago, I bought this little tiny book about Adrien, which I'd started to read and then just, I don't know, disappeared. And um, it was an éloge. It was, it was published by his son, Robert, who was a urologist, very successful, and gynecologist in Paris. Um, so Bruce had a younger brother who was a doctor and, and a friend called, um, uh, who together went on a kind of journey back to the village, the, the small town that Proust calls Cambrai, which is actually a village called Ilie. And, um, and so I went back to this, and in one of these extraordinary moments of weird, spooky serendipity, the little booklet fell open at this page, which is about the funeral of Adrien Proust, where Le Tout Paris came, and this extraordinary dried sprig of hawthorn. And any of you who've read, uh, you know, got as far as reading volume one, Swan's Way, Côté de chez Swan, will know that Hawthorne was incredibly significant for Proust. It was, there were, there were uh, uh, branches of it in a church and the scent of Hawthorne 
switched on Proust's sort of sensory wiring in a way he describes ecstatically. And I thought, whoa, this is a sign from, you know, spooky writer's place somewhere out there, actually. And, um, and I started to think about, actually, the relationship between national and international politics and how we, how we deal under conditions of extreme stress and fear with, with epidemics and pandemics. And I think the heart of your book, whether you're talking about smallpox or cholera or plague, is this paradox that yeah. humans are capable of incredible ingenuity, but equally primitive irrationality. And yeah. it comes up time and time again. Yeah. The reason that is exactly, and I realise that, you know, a lot of what I've written over many, many books, actually, kind of turns on that. My book about, you know, the French Revolution is really about a phenomenon which ought to have been a consummation of Enlightenment philosophy, really, of Montesquieu and Rousseau, insofar as they can be reconciled, but turns into a kind of nightmare of mad theatrical violence, some licensed by the state, some not licensed by the state. And I sort of, I guess with this book, I've come to realize, you know, in a kind of duh sort of way, that we think of, because history books are, you know, often organized in stages, mm. really, that you've got your enlightenment and then something doesn't quite work out as expected. And then you've got your romantic nationalism. But that's actually not true. You know, the, the books, the founding formative texts about German nationalism, for example, by Johann Gottfried Herder, for example, are published in the 1760s, around exactly the same time as Rousseau and, and Diderot and the Encyclopédie. So these kind of extraordinary, terrible twins, which march together into modernity, um, scientific, analytical science and empirically acquired knowledge and uh, uh, upholding as utterly authentic to human behavior, impulse and instinct, and therefore, while not necessarily being delighted by it, accepting it's part of what it's like to be a human being, to be irrational and hysterical and paranoid and the subject of nightmares. And this has gone on and on. And that's why, you know, my wonderful history teacher was, was wrong, because really the Enlightenment vision was that one day, as science and education progress, um, poverty and superstition, particularly religious superstition, um, and horrible disease will vanish from the face of the earth. And all the time, this sort of, you know, gremlin world of the other dark side of our natural instinct of our wiring was going straight ahead. And could, what is surprising and incredibly depressing is how much it continues to be the case now. Mm. You know, there are, uh, uh, as we said, there, there are, there's a democratic candidate, you all may have noticed this, by the name of Robert Kennedy Jr., that family, who's running as an anti-vaccine presidential candidate mm. for the Democratic Party. 
and is getting, and I thought this was an unelectable joke, but actually I was told by the New York Times correspondent in London, far from being a joke, Susan Sarandon, for what that's worth or not, has sort of basically endorsed him, and, and money and celebrity are kind of flowing towards him. Mm. And then as a Republican, you know, Ron DeSantis makes much of saying, what do the scientists know? They got it all wrong about vaccines and lockdown and masks and so on. So this sort of sense in which an extreme moment in our you know, collective history, both environmental and biomedical, was still fighting that fight between the two halves of our consciousness. Well, and this is a book really about that. And we'll come to that um, and that kind of where that leaves us now. But I want to go back to smallpox, which right. is the first account of successful mm. inoculation. But God forbid it came from the Ottoman Empire. Um, and what is so interesting was the origins of that was quite, yeah. it, it was very problematic, wasn't it? Because it was upturning assumptions within Christian Europe yeah. uh, that, that you could learn from the East. Yeah, it was, it, it was astonishing. The, the, the book, um, the narrative proper of, of Foreign Bodies begins with a terrifying um, attack of smallpox, which Voltaire went through and very nearly killed him. Um, and it's Voltaire who writes the first essay meant for a, a popular readership in the so-called Lettre Philosophique, which actually comes out first in English. Voltaire was in England, 1726-7, but it comes out in 1733 as letters concerning the English nation. It's very flattering to, to us. Um, in a kind of um, very invidious comparison with, with the French. Not, as a result, the book was instantly burned by the public hangman in Paris, of course. <laughs> Sore losers, you know. Um, and Voltaire noticed that he'd picked up from a pool of information um, this extraordinary phenomenon, which was seen by this woman, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, the wife of Edward Wortley Montague, the British ambassador to Constantinople in, in 1716, 1718, that uh, women in the Sultan's harem in the Seraglio, um, but not just women in the Sultan, she noticed it when she was in Adrianople and indeed in Sofia on her way, they were both on their way to take up the position at the embassy, that women were astonishingly completely without the disfigurement and scars of smallpox attacks. And at that time, Smallpox was killing, killing one in six people who caught it. And Mary Wortley Montague herself had had a terrible attack, and, which, and she was a had been a famous beauty. And her face was just cratered with smallpox scars. And she lost, famously, she lost her eyelashes altogether, which, you know, sounds like a small thing, but obviously is a terrible thing, really, in a way. And um, she, so she discovers this. She was not the first to notice this. Um, and there were two remarkable physicians, one called Emanuele Timoni and the other one called Giacomo Pilarini, although I'm giving them their Italian names, and they both had Italian associations, but they were Greek. One was from um, Chios, and the other one was from Help Cephalonia. Um, and like many other physicians in that larger Ottoman Empire, they were Timoni was also a translator. He came from a family of dragomans, of official interpreters. But many of these people who were commercial agents were also physicians and translators and extraordinary virtuosi. And it was they who first sent reports 
that in the Ottoman Empire, mostly as a result of practice not by Muslims, but by elderly Greek Christian ladies, are this extraordinary thing, that you take a bit of pus, in other words, you take the horrible, disgusting matter of, that would kill you, um, and you inject it into your arms. And it not only does not kill you, it also protects you from disfigurement if you happen to survive, that the scabs will be far fewer and they drop off. And, you know, to children, and particularly um, in, in that Greco-Oriental word, to female children, whom it was thought the marriage, pro correctly, marriage prospects would disappear if they went like, Larry like Lady Mary Wortley Montague from beautiful to not beautiful. Um, and it was sort of a celebrated folk custom. And the astonishing thing, Kavita, to me, I mean, one of the many big surprises was that their reports were sent to the Royal Society. So we're now around 1714, 15, 16, that very, very early on in the 18th century. And were treated with the utmost seriousness. So this was an absolute reversal of what we think of as the imperial mentality. The Royal Society, since it had been founded under Charles II in the 1660s, had been in the business of saying, we are the heirs of Francis Bacon. We are going to sweep away dreadful folk medicine and folk wisdom and folk practice with the fruits of hard-earned, empirically acquired knowledge. Um, and they were uh, undoubtedly impressed by that, and more reports came in. And of course, there were divisions, um, but they, they then set about to try and understand, again, not having a clue about pathogenesis. Uh, this, but it was, they accepted that it was demonstrably true that this, so it had to have Brits and Europeans, in, and not just in, in Turkey, but in Syria, in North Africa, um, but in a world which was supposed to be barbaric and decayed and degenerate, being a lifesaver. If you were inoculated, this is 100 years before Jenner, so this is human inoculation. Um, uh, and Lucy Ward, by the way, you're not here, are you, Lucy? Anyway, Lucy Ward has written a wonderful book about a doctor called Thomas Dimsdale, who Go, put, goes to Russia and persuades Catherine the Great to inoculate herself and, and um, many, both aristocrats and non-aristocrats in Russia. It's a great book, re highly recommend it. Um, but, um, you know, it was, it's such a counterintuitive thing to do, but your odds, I was going to say, the odds of dying or being horribly disfigured dropped from one in six to one in 50. You know, so Voltaire who'd survived, you know, then became a campaigner for this. And Mary does an extraordinary thing. She actually inoculates her six-year-old boy in Constantinople. Um, not the first English person to inoculate, but certainly the first mother to, to do this. And not only does she do this, she does it actually when Edward is away with the Sultan in, in Edirne, in Adrianople. And... Um, it's quite clear she chose her timing. She was helped by Emmanuel Timoni to find one of these Greek ladies who did the inoculation, but she also had the embassy surgeon, a, a, a Scotsman practicing in England called Charles Maitland, be there. And he said, the Greek woman, he complained that she did it so roughly that the boy cried and cried and he had to take over the job, true or not, not, not sure. 
But she becomes, when she goes back to England, because the embassy sort of fails in what it was supposed to do, um, it can't be my mother complaining about me. <laughs> might be, you know. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, when she goes back to England, she then inoculates her daughter. And here she is being painted, becomes very famous, painted by Godfrey Nella in Turkish dress. Um, but she, inoc she inoculates her, her daughter, and she decides to become a campaigner for inoculation. And Kavita and I were talking about this. Women play an extraordinary part. The, the, the part that it was very important that mothers came forward to do this ostensibly incredibly dangerous thing or risky or surprising or shocking thing. And she actually, the, first, the most important person she persuades is the then Princess of Wales, Caroline of Ansbach, who becomes Queen Caroline to George II when George II becomes king in 1727. So there is a kind of sort of celebrity elite mm -hmm. moment without which, and, and even so, it takes a long time, really until the 1750s, for inoculation to be accepted. And in the meantime, she, as a woman, is un particularly is under ferocious attack, particularly from the clergy, um, who say, and one of them, called William Wagstaff, preaches... You, you at, must say this quote, because it's such... Yeah, what, the one about... Um, yes, the Practiced by a few ignorant have you got women it? Yes. among an illiterate and unthinking people should, be, <laughs> should have a sudden and upon slender evidence be in one of the politest nations in the world. Yes, yes. Well, how could you possibly, you know, take advice from from women altogether, but particularly women in Turkey, mm. um, and who are illiterate and ignorant and so on. So this is an extraordinary kind of tipping moment, actually, sort of reversing but, but, things. But you say something which I found really interesting, which was that you, you talk about Syria, Persia, the Ottoman Empire, but there were cases in Pembrokeshire and Carmarthenshire yeah. where people yeah. were, communities were inoculating Absolutely. themselves. had been. For, before this. Yeah. Um, it, it's really only discovered by... Uh, the Royal Society does something extraordinary, uh, quite apart from taking all this very seriously and fending off violent, and violent attacks, particularly from the clergy, but not only from the clergy. Um, it starts to do serious data gathering. And one of the chapters is about a man incredibly brave and determined, Dr. called Thomas Nettleton in Halifax, um, who um, really uh, organises, and he does it partly himself, door-to-door -door inquiries about actually um, who had smallpox, um, uh, you know, whether they'd been inoculated, would they be inoculated, and so on. So a really serious exercise in mass data gathering is, is um, uh, comes about starting around 1722 and going through to the early 1730s. Um, and, um, you know, that, that goes a long way to helping. It doesn't finally clinch the case at all. What was, now I've forgotten the first question, actually. Whales. Question. Oh, whales, thank you. Yeah, so it's <laughs> by, by, they establish links with um, apothecaries and surgeons. The medical profession at the time is divided um, in order of, and this is actually very important, it's divided in terms of um, prestige um, and authority. And physicians do not do jabs and, at all beneath them. 
um, surgeons who are bloodletters and tree panners, you know, do, do the jabbing. Um, but the Royal Society then establishes, under a man called James Durin, again, who is the great statistician of the Royal Society at this time, in the 1720s, um, a, a network all around the country um, to try, simply try and get information. And in the course of that, they discover that actually in Pembrokeshire, in, in South um, West Wales in particular, there had been a folk practice time out of mind. Nobody really knew it, it had been going on immemorially, really, where uh, um, uh, the arms of children in particular were rubbed so hard they became sore and they started to bleed rather than be. And then infected matter was transferred. And it was known as a kind of common practice. It was later discovered this was the case in some Hebridean islands. So there's no explanation for how that started or when that started, but it was really so. There was one fantastic story about the son of the deacon of St. David's or the bishop of St. David's, I think, who said, um, and when he was a schoolboy, when he was sort of 10 or 11, he and his mates used, used the back of a penknife, he said, to actually rub very hard and make, bring a little blood, and then, you know, someone would have gone and got, you know, a little bowl of pus. Yeah. And, um, and he's saying, didn't hurt at all, and we knew we were safe. And this is so extraordinary. So again, the sort of whole hierarchy of wisdom mm. is fantastically scrambled by, by that. Well, you talked a little bit about writing women back into this history, but there is a central character in this book, a fascinating character, mm. Valdemar Hafkin. Hafkin, yes. Who is uh, a Jew from Odessa, um, and here he is, and just give us a little bit of his backstory, and then we'll talk about his journey yeah. to Paris and then to India, where right. he did some monumental right. work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, this is a photograph. I'm, I'm showing you um, a photograph actually taken at the height of his fame. He's briefly famous. This was taken in 1899 in a chilly summer in Oxford. Um, by uh, another wonderful woman who occurs very fleetingly in a book called Angelina Ackland, who was a really pioneering photographer. She actually was the first person to develop a form of colour photography anywhere, I think, actually, but certainly in Britain. And Angie, as she liked to be called, she was the daughter of the uh, retired Emer the Emeritus Regis Professor of Pathology, who you can see here, called Sir Henry Ackland. And they'd both come to hear Valdemar Hafke, and, and I'm doing it the wrong way around, but I'll so I'll try not to make it too confusion, confusing. They'd first um, known about um, Hafkin when he came with a vaccine against cholera in 1895 and had given a lecture to the Joint Colleges of Physicians and Surgeons in London. And they instantly known old Sir Henry had been responsible for the defense of the population of Oxford against cholera in an outbreak, I think, in the, in the outbreak in the 1850s, I believe it was 1854, something like that. And he knew immediately that this was going to work. By 1899, germ theory had been revealed, sorry, had been revealed. And he became, um, in their own words, the kind of, you know, savior of mankind, particularly in areas of the world that were incredibly badly vulnerable to outbreaks of ferociously um, dangerous epidemics. And as you can see, he's a bit of a looker and he's a phenomenal dresser. Um, and he becomes their archetype. They actually, in, in, uh, they bring him down to the country house of the Acklands in Devon 
and it turns out he can ride a horse, which is very good. And um, you know, he's the perfect example of a good Jew, for, even for those who are very suspicious of Jews, because he plays not just the piano, but the violin as well. And is shy and sweet. And it, I, I ended up living with him, actually, mm -hmm. very, very closely. And I, I know exactly how he would behave if he walked through that door and sat down and stared bemusingly at me from the front row there. And he, he is sort of, that happens when you do historical research sometimes, yeah? I mean, it happens to you too. So what they didn't know was here he is already as, as, as a good looker in Odessa um, at, um, uh, in 1884. So he's, in, he's 24, he was born in 1860. And he's born to a family of secular, not entirely secular Jews, but not, not shtetl, we're not in Fiddler on the Roof country here. Um, Odessa was the one city in so-called Novorussia, New Russia, where Jews could uh, get an education in Russian and in the professions and in medicine. And he's at the University um, of Odessa. Um, and extraordinarily, he's, even though he's, he's famous in, for much of his life as being quite reserved and quiet. He had a very passionate side to him. And he's among a group, a small group of Jewish students who um, organized the first armed protection of the Jewish community against pogroms. And a huge pogrom came down after the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in 1881. And he's caught with guns on him three times and thrown into prison. And he's only rescued by his doctoral supervisor, a man who became famous as so-called father of immunology, Eli Mechnikov, who's also a converted Jew. So Hafkin has this impassioned background, and um, he's in trouble constantly, and the Tsarist police open a huge dossier on his terrorist activities, in effect. It's thought, and I actually think it's probably true, that he belonged to um, Novia the organization which in, in St. Petersburg had actually organized the assassination. I think he had nothing to do with that himself. But anyway, he was, he was regarded as super suspicious and super dangerous. And in the end, Mechnikov, uh, who, who sprung him because he had connections in St. Petersburg, sprung him three times from prison. Um, made sure the trial was not going to, he was not to go, to go on trial for armed treason and either be sent to Siberia or executed. Um, uh, Mechnikov ends up at the, the, at the Pasteur Institute in its first year um, when it opened in early, uh, late 1888 and early 1889. And Hafkin, he sends for Hafkin. Hafkin had had menial jobs. He was only really kept going as a student by um, sort of pocket money and effects sent by his half-brother Alexander. And he has the lowly job of being, he was a, a, a guard in the zoology, natural history museum in Odessa. And in Paris, nobody really wanted to hire him as a, as a, as a proper doctoral student. So he becomes an assistant librarian. But he's too clever and too resourceful and too deeply involved in, in pure research work, particularly under um, Pasteur's number two, Emile Roux, in the search for a cholera vaccine and to be entirely disregarded. And the break comes when uh, a young 
um, medic at the Pasteur, a young researcher at the Pasteur Institute called Alexandre Yersin, who ends up discovering the, the plague bacillus, the bubonic plague bacillus, suddenly, abruptly, leaves the Pasteur Institute and goes off to be a ship's doctor for a while in, in Southeast Asia and Vietnam. And, and young Hafkin then gets his job of preparing lectures um, for, um, for Emil Rube. It was the first microbiology course in the world, famous course. And in the archive in, in Jerusalem, um, uh, there, Hafkin, so he's, he's thinking and writing and speaking in Russian and French, but he's very interested in English. An extraordinary portrait of a kind of feverishly driven young man appears. First of all, notebook after notebook after notebook of lab notes about setting up the experiments for the students and getting the microbiology absolutely right. At the same time, tiny notebooks in exquisite French calligraphy, passages from the novels of Honoré de Balzac, mm. and letters from Edward Jenner, mm. the first vaccinator, cowpox vaccinator. So a complicated and extraordinary person. And he does, after many, many a lengthy process, manage to produce a viable vaccine against cholera, which he tests always, as he does, on himself first, a live vaccine a live vaccine, and you get a double dose of, I think you still do, actually, of a cholera vaccine. First, um, uh, uh, f first a so-called attenuated dose to kind of kickstart your immune system, because Hafkin, unlike much of the medical and epidemiological world, uh, he's in the Pasteur Institute, he's with Metchikoff, understood what there, there was such a thing as the immune system. And so the attenuated dose kick-starts, and then it prepares you for the second dose of the, of, the, of the live vaccine, which is much fiercer. And he rounds up some of his Russian-French friends, some at the Institute, some not, who then submit themselves to, um, to the cholera vaccine. And it works. It works. They have a fever, um, a mild fever. They have very, um, they have a little diarrhea, nothing very much. Um, swelling, but it actually it works as a, a as a viable vaccine. Simon Shama and Kavita Puri there discussing the book Foreign Bodies. The second half of the discussion will follow in the next episode, but if you want to listen right now, you can get the second part by being a member of Intelligence Squared via the website intelligencesquared.com membership or by subscribing to Apple Podcasts. Do also check out our newsletter if you want to be up to date on all the latest things and events coming up on Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared.